Thank you, music team. Great to be with you once again. This is week six. For those of you that uh, don't realize, um, our, our pastor, Paul, is on sabbatical, and uh, he left the beginning of June, said, I'm out of here, and uh, we said, okay, that's great, enjoy your time. He's back the end of September, and so he'll be back, no need to panic, and uh, it's great to, uh, we're hearing little tidbits that he's having a great time uh, being away, and uh, we're looking forward to that, but uh, we've been uh, looking at uh, how to love God, and, and today we're going to talk about how to love others. And for those of you that haven't been with us, either here or online, uh, this is the sixth and final uh, part of this little series that we're doing. And uh, we've been studying Mark 12, 29 to 31. There is a little note, handout, booklet if you want. I think there's some still out in the foyer. And if you've missed this series, and it's intriguing to you, how do we love God in our totality and love others, Uh, You can go back and all of our, uh, I believe, YouTube and Facebook, uh, or you can go to our website. All the videos are captured there, and you can re-watch and listen and and take in some of that teaching. So we encourage you to do that if you'd like. So we're going to do a quick review. Uh, We've been talking about loving God uh, with all of us, and we started with a little introduction, which, which this idea that's so important for us to realize is that God is the initiator. And uh, God initiated a relationship with us based on love. And we must determine how we're going to respond to that. You, You have to decide. You have to make a decision. All of us will actually make a decision. The whole world, everybody who's ever lived here, will make a decision. We hope that that decision will be to pursue God, accept Christ, and live in the work of his Holy Spirit. But God is the initiator. God extends this to us through his love. Then we talked about how do we love God with our heart. To love God with our heart is to submit our will, seek to obey all his commands, and live under his authority. Of course, part of that is coming to a point, hopefully, where we decide to say, you know what, I'm going to live my life for God. We accept Christ. We accept the work of the Lord the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross, and we move forward in his strength and in the strength of the Holy Spirit. Then we talked about the soul. To love God with our soul is to desire and pursue him with all of our being. We really are souls as opposed to maybe the idea that we have a soul. Uh, And then we give our personality to him to be shaped by his will. So we're all created uniquely. We're all created with gifts and skills to develop and so on, but we, we see those redeemed uh, by God and shaped to his will. Then we talked about the mind. To love God with our minds is to be a mind transformed, accepting spiritual truth, living in settled peace, and discipline in our thought processes. Last week we talked about strength. To love God Uh, With our strength, we focus our energy and discipline our bodies in a way that pleases God. All right, so that's sort of, that's the loving God part, and and now we're going to talk a little bit about the strength. Now, our passage again, I'm going to read it for you, and again, hopefully you've got this memorized, uh, most of us by now. But again, one of the teachers of the law, 
came and heard them debating, noticing that Jesus had given a good response, he asked, of all the commandments, which is the most important one? And Jesus answered, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And the second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There's no greater command than these. And so today we are talking about our neighbor. How do we love our neighbor? And uh, when I uh, talked about this in the introduction uh, part of this series, we talked about the fact that Jesus talks about loving God, loving our neighbor, and he says these things, they don't exist separate from each other, not mutually exclusive. They, they can't exist except together. You can't say you love God and then not love your neighbor. That, does, that doesn't work. And so it's very interesting that Jesus puts them together and then at the end, in, 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 the, um, in the scripture, he talks about one singular command, which includes both. So they really are inseparable. And as we love God, and as we've gone through this, and hopefully we're applying some of these things, and, and understanding how we love God, and the Holy Spirit is working through us as we've accepted Christ, that's an important part. Um, now this loving others should be a natural outflow. Now, the challenge is, as I reflect on my life, and perhaps as you do on yours, not necessarily is it as natural as I'd like it to be. And so, again, I have to go back to, okay, submitting my will and what God calls and asks of me, which includes loving my neighbor. Now, interesting here, the command is not focused on loving ourselves, although that's, you know, we're to love others as we love ourselves. The, the focus of the command is loving others, and the, our, our loving ourselves is sort of that comparative value that we're to use because hopefully we understand that in context and all that we do for ourselves and would do for ourselves, and that that is to be extended to others. So it's not this idea that, well, first... I'm going to really love myself, and I'm going to really be selfish, and I'm going to really put it on me. I'm just going to love me. And then somehow others will get loved, you know, sort of somehow. That's not what, that's not what Jesus is saying. This is a comparative value, how you love yourself, but the command is to love others. The command is to love others. And that's what's important. So, our sermon in a sentence this morning, as a result of our growing love for God, the natural next step is to love others, including those difficult to love, and demonstrate a love of compassion and service to others. So, we actually aren't going to spend a lot of time this morning talking about how to love those that are easy to love. We're not going to spend a lot of time talking about how to love those that we like and that like us. That's not where we're going to focus this morning, because for most of us, that's not our challenge. We know it's easy to love people that think we're great, right? You're great. I like you, right? That's just, okay, natural, <laughs> right? So that's not going to be the, the, the focus this morning, uh, Certainly we need to love those that are very easy to love. Absolutely, we need to do that. But we also need to love those that perhaps are more difficult for us to love because we have 
different points of view. We have different backgrounds. We have different understandings. We have a different, uh, you know, whatever we have, perspective on life, uh, faith, theology, the world, all of that stuff, whatever it is, or just people that are actually trying to sabotage us or are, in a sense, harming us. Well, we still need to love them as well. And we're going to talk a little bit about those. So we're going to focus on that as we uh, delve into this. So the first point this morning we're going to talk about is we need to have mercy on those in need. Now, need could be anything. Uh, people are, are uh, in a state of desperation, uh, are uh, perhaps struggling, uh, could be anything from depression to anxiety to whatever those challenges are that we have in life. It could be financial need. Uh, it could be relational need. They're, they're just in a difficult relationship and they need some, some help, some mercy. I don't know what it is, but whatever the need is, it all counts. And we need to have mercy for those in need. In Matthew 9, 9 to 13, uh, this is what it says. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at a tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him, and Matthew got up and followed him. And while Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with them. And his disciples, uh, sorry, with him and his disciples, pardon me. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but the sinners. Now, we could, we could take this uh, verse and, and move it over into our context. And again, it's like, that's great that you're loving the, the, the lovely. Keep going. But don't forget, I desire mercy here. I want to see you love those that require mercy. I want to see you love those that aren't maybe easy for you to love for all those various reasons. And mercy really is at the core of loving others. We need to see them with the eyes of mercy. And here's what's important. As we accept and respond to God's mercy in our lives, which is ongoing, then we extend that mercy to others, our neighbor. Uh, I used to do this fun thing with kids at camp. We'd talk about forgiveness or mercy and uh, we just do this crazy fun thing because we talk about, oh, you've got to forgive people like a lot of times, right? The Bible says 70 times. 70. And it was just a challenging thing for these kids. It's like, no way, no way. And we talk about, well, God forgives us a lot. And we, we'd get a whiteboard out and uh, we'd start doing some math. Like, how many times do you do something that, you know, goes against what God's word says or you don't do something you know you should? And how often would you do that in a day, let's say? And some kids put up their hand and throw out some number and... And, and so we'd go through that, and then we'd start applying the math, right? Okay, so how many days in a week? How many weeks in a month? How many months in a year? And what's the average lifespan? You know, and we'd do the whole math, and it was a very big number. I'd have some kid with a little calculator, you know, punching it in. Okay, write the number. I don't know how to write 16 million, you know, and it, that's okay. 
And it was like, this is what God does for us in extending mercy. Ongoing. Our whole lives. And as we start to grapple with that understanding of what God has done for us, it's, it's incredible because then we start to have the perspectives like, wow, I need to share and extend that to others. It's also important that Jesus sets here some priority in terms of that, that, that people are our priority. People are our priority, not our religious acts. Not the things that sometimes I or you somehow put ahead of helping or being merciful to other people in the name of Christianity or in the name of church or in the name of God or serving him. People are to be a priority. And we bring hope to people. That's extending mercy. And this is more important than being religious. And this is what Jesus says. You guys are all about the rules. You're going to follow a rule and let people just be without mercy. You're going to let people be without hope. That's wrong. Wrong. We love God with all of us and through loving others. It's just, it's important. And the religious acts that we do, the behaviors that we do, the practices that we do, should be a means to those ends, not the ends in itself. We don't come to church and sing the songs because we can check that off the list. We do that because we want to show our love for God. And we don't behave certain ways or extend mercy or, or donate to charity just so we can check that off. That's a means to an end to be merciful to people, to show our love for God and our love for others. And don't ever just get to the, I just got to check the boxes and feel good about that. We actually need to be doing meaningful love towards God and meaningful love towards other. All right, well, who is our neighbor? And, of course, a lot of us are very familiar with this passage. I'm going to share with you Luke 10, 25 to 29. And this is what it says. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. you got to love these guys are always testing Jesus. He's like, bring it on. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, what is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? And he answered, and it's interesting because he answers with our passage that we've been studying. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And in reply, Jesus tells this story. Now, Jesus doesn't tell a story, to go back to sort of the intro here, of somebody that's real easy to love. Oh yeah, here's a person real easy to love, and they're your neighbor. And, and they are, but this is also your neighbor. A man was going from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road. And when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came to where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him, extended mercy. He went to him, bandaged his wounds, pouring out oil and wine, and then he put the man on his own donkey 
brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. He said, look after him, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. I, just, I can imagine Jesus coming up with these stories. And he's just like, oh, thank you for asking me that. Here's a great story. And just, you know, these were jaw-dropping, stop-in-your-tracks, life-changing, mind-altering, thinking kind of what? What? And this interaction between Jesus and the teacher of the law is to determine, is there some discrimination that I can use so that I don't have to love everybody? Just most people. (laughs) And Jesus tells this story that really basically says absolutely not. There There is no discrimination. You just have to love everyone no matter what. So let's take a look at some of the people in this story. First, there's the victim. Now, the victim is a human, human being. Uh, they're half dead, and they're on the road to Jericho. So that's, that's sort of who, who our victim is. What's interesting in this story is that their ethnic origin is not disclosed. Uh, I think in many ways the uh, listeners to this are assuming that it's a Jewish person that's been, that's been attacked, but that's not specifically mentioned. And what's interesting is there's no mention of the dress or that the person actually says anything. And those would be, quite honestly, those would be the two ways that you would determine what someone's ethnic origin would be. I would listen to how how they talk, what language, the dialect, the accent, and I would see how people would dress. And I could make a fairly good, generalized, mind you, but a fairly good assumption as to what and where this person and what people group they belong to. But those things weren't in the story. We just have a human being half dead on the way to Jericho. So we have a valuable, nameless human being in desperate need. We have a priest. Now, priests would be fairly upper class in their, uh, in their role in society, in that culture. Uh, they, they would have the means to help. Okay, they, would have, they would have the financial ability. Uh, they should have the know-how. They should, they should understand those kind of things. They would have the means to help. These were people who were wealthy. Nowadays, we don't maybe look at priests as, as wealthy. You know, our pastors are not the most wealthy people. But in this day and age, in this culture, the priests, they had access to lots of things and had wealth. They were also bound by uh, the religious law and rights. So there were a lot of things. And if you remember going all the way back to her introduction, the Jews had come up with over 600 laws that you were to follow and how you followed them and so on and so forth. And so there were obviously some, hopefully some values, some morals, some things that this person was aware of and should be following. Here's the problem. We had a half-dead man, and I don't know who that is. Is it a half-dead priest? Not sure. Don't know. Can't tell. Right? But they're half-dead, and that's a problem. Because for the Jewish people, they had a real issue with death. And if you know anything about uh, some of that, this idea of of death or someone who they were fairly sure was going to die, this was the issue with leprosy, is that 
they were all outcast and put out because that was all associated with death and you couldn't touch something that was dead and there were a lot of, a lot of rules and rituals around that. And so this idea that they're half dead or mostly dead um, was, was a challenge and they could become unclean in trying to help them. And the importance of ritual purity was more important than what that and what those rites and what those rules were established for. Going back to the mercy. People are more important than these rites and rituals which were created on our means that we're supposed to be helping and being merciful to people. So he makes a decision and moves to the other side. Doesn't help that person. The love for that neighbor was conditional. It was conditional. And that's a huge challenge, and we're going to see this conditional. Jesus, it's unconditional. His love towards us is unconditional. Our love towards others, unconditional. It's going to get worse. You'll see in a minute, but we'll get to that in a few minutes. The next person in our story is the Levite. Um, The Levite would be responsible for the upkeep of the temple, certainly would be very aware of rituals and laws and the important things that God was trying to teach and, and bring to the people. Not to the same degree as the priest, mind you, but for similar reasons to the priest, move to the other side. I just don't know, and I just can't get involved with that. It's messy, or I might become unclean. And so helping the person took a lesser priority to following this right or what have you. And so, again, we see an unconditional, sorry, pardon me, a conditional love. Then we have the Good Samaritan, which Jesus just throws us in here. And, and for those of you that don't know, there was a long-standing hatred on the part of the Jews towards the Samaritans. Samaritans were half-breeds, so they weren't pure. Uh, and this resulted in mixed relationships between the, the Jews and the conquering Assyrians in, in history prior to this. And what's interesting is that Jesus sets this character in our story as the representation of righteousness as the representation of what you should do or what is right and it's very interesting and for for the people listening to this story they would not view this person as religious but they would have viewed this person as irreligious completely oh that person is a heathen that person's an outsider that person they're not living their life for god and living their life rightly like we are And so Jesus really sets them up for this. And then, basically, this Samaritan models compassion. And this compassion is translated into action. He he bandages and pours out oil and wine. These are elements of sacrifice. The same the priest would use to perform uh, ritual sacrifice of worship. Uh, The Samaritan becomes the real priest in the story. A priest to the person not a conductor of ritual. And this person, this Samaritan, was also committed to restoration. Not just the immediate first aid of this individual, but the restoration of this person to become on, certainly on the, the road to wholeness. He's committed to restoration, and this takes time, and it takes his resources. Here we see unconditional love and effort to do the initial Extension of mercy and restoration ministry. Well, we see really in this story the example of the Samaritan as the example of Jesus. 
Jesus, uh, he is an outsider. He has a lowly birth. Uh, He's a teacher, but he has not come up through the religious process of the Jewish culture of that time. He's not constrained by the laws that separate the religious from from the people, and so he's all about people and how the religious laws and these things apply to loving people. He pours out The pouring out of his own blood on the cross is like the pouring out of the oil and wine in our story. Uh, We see Jesus' life where he's he's not liked. Uh, He's even hated. He's an outsider on the part of the Jews, like a Samaritan. He extends and shows outrageous grace to us by going to a cross and dying for us. And he's willing, with the work of the Holy Spirit, and his Father to work with us and live with us and see us through our entire lives to spiritual growth and health, which is restoration. So in this story, we're the victim, right? And uh, as it relates to Jesus, and the precondition to extend mercy or to be like a Samaritan is to first receive it, mercy, from Jesus, our Samaritan. And let me be really clear, this idea of loving others and showing mercy, and, and like I said, this is going to get a little more difficult in the next point, this is, not, this is not easy. And if you don't have, at some point in your life, come to that understanding who Jesus is and accepted Jesus and have the Holy Spirit working through you to do this, what is very difficult work, it's, it's going to be impossible. But with the help of the Holy Spirit, because of our relationship with Jesus, this is possible, and um, it's amazing. But as we understand what Christ has done for us, it should, in our mind and in our actions, start to become a more natural um, thing for us to do and extend to others. Okay, our second thing this morning. So we've talked about showing mercy. Second thing this morning, love those who do you harm. Oh, rats. Matthew 5, 38 to 44, says this. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give the one who asks you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Oh, man. Thanks, Jesus. And this is is a challenge. Like, okay, there's those that need mercy that aren't like us and aren't you know, maybe that easy to love. And then there are those that are out to get us or doing harm towards us, and we're supposed to love them too? That's what he says. How far do we stretch this? What do we do? We extend mercy, but Jesus calls us further down this path to love those who would do harm. Now, let's look at this passage, because there's a lot in here that's like, what does this mean? This idea of do not resist an evil person kind of is sort of the overarching theme here. 
And it seems a little absurd, like if someone's trying to do you harm, our natural reaction is to do harm back. Uh, and, um, but it's interesting because Jesus sets up a few things. And the first thing here to talk about uh, is the law of just retribution. So this idea of an eye for an eye, you know, we've heard that term before. Um, what Jesus was putting forward here as we relate to those that do harm and so on and so forth is he was trying to um, limit the escalation of revenge. All right, so this idea that we go around poking each other's eyes out isn't specifically what's sort of dealt with here, but the idea that if someone does something to you, our, our natural reaction is like, oh, yeah, you wait, I'm going to get you back, and I'm going to get you back tenfold, right, or twice as bad, or I'm going to, you know, and, and Jesus says, hold on a minute here. Someone does harm to us. There needs to be a just retribution there. Um, and so this, this started to set out for uh, the Jewish people anyways, this, this idea of community law and justice that didn't escalate and, and tried to say, okay, hold on here. There needs to be a just response. This idea of do not resist, uh, the original would indicate that we do not violently resist. Do not strike back in kind. Do not give blow for blow. Uh, we do not use the same means or ways of dealing with those who intend to do us harm. We have a different response than what we're receiving. Now, the, the, the idea is that we want to respond in kind or even greater, right? That, that's, that's a real challenge that we have to be careful with. We want to just come right back at them with whatever they're delivering us, right? But... Jesus says, no, we want to deal with them differently. And the issue is not resisting evil. Okay, evil's out there, we need to resist evil, but how we resist evil. And in the world, there's two main approaches. There's a passivity approach, which is uh, flight, we run away from things. Or a violent resistance, which is a fight. But Jesus offers a third way, where we don't run away, and we don't necessarily have a violent response, but some other responses. A non-violent, loving restraint that does not use the same means or sink to the level that the evildoer is using. And Jesus uses three illustrations of non-violent responses that we can use in principle that allow the victim to gain control, affirm the dignity and worth of the perpetrator, and provide an opportunity for redemption. Yeah, even those that want to do harm towards us are deserving of redemption. And we can go to other scripture that talks about the fact that we're to be ministers of reconciliation between God and man. And it's an important part of what we do. And so how do we do that when people are against us? Okay, turn the other cheek. At first glance, this seems like we're to take a hit and then take another and so on. And this is not about a fist fight. Uh, Jesus is not advocating letting someone pummel us to the ground. The context here is the example of a slap uh, with the back of the hand, mostly in this case to demean or to degrade or put the person in their place. So this was a very common practice 
to slap someone for whatever reason to degrade, demean, put them in their place. Uh, Turning the other cheek instead of just slinking off in silence and and agreeing with the oppressor. Um, And and instead, we take the initiative to turn the other cheek, um, and that would let the offender know that the blow did not have its intended effect. Try again. I deny you the right to humiliate me. Okay, You, You can hit me, but you're not going to humiliate me. I do not feel the same way about me as you do. Okay, You mean to degrade and to, to put me down and put me in my place, but that's, I don't believe that that's the case in terms of how that works. And as well, presenting the other cheek was a way of exposing the shame of the oppressor's deed. And so sometimes we've seen some movies maybe where someone you can just see they're being so unjustly punished. And as they stand up to that punishment, you start to see those who are watching in the background start to turn from, yes, they did something wrong, but now this is turning into just someone's just trying to go beyond what's just. And that's a problem. And so this exposes the shame of the oppressor's deed. And a nonviolent, it's a nonviolent resistance to evil using good. Okay, give your cloak. This too seems odd. The context here is that this would have taken place in a courtroom with a wealthy person attempting to collect on a debt that's owed to them. So callous is the oppressor that they are attempting to take the debtor's clothes as well. The tunic and the cloak, the tunic is the undergarment and the cloak is the overcoat, if given as collateral in the Jewish culture, would then have to be returned at the end of the day. Again, this is one of these rules. You can read Leviticus if you want to find out all about this great stuff. And it had to be returned at the end of the day. So it was given as sort of a token of, yes, I owe you, and, uh, but it needed to be returned. And this was a way to protect the poor because it was the poor who were indebted to the wealthy. And I would give you my code as a, an extension that, yes, I need to repay you, and here's my commitment that I'll do that, but that coat comes back so I don't freeze at night. And so that was important. To gain control and reveal the dishonor of the powerful. So when people are powerful and going beyond, they're being unjust, in their approach. Someone who's wealthy that doesn't even need the debt repaid in some cases, just oppressing someone that is in need of mercy, it would go, if you would go beyond in terms of, okay, here's my cloak too, it again would expose the shameful thing that's being asked. This act provides context for someone to see what they have become. Money that they don't need has become more important than the well-being of people. And so if you can imagine this scene where you have someone who's so wealthy and has so much and they are just going and oppressing and oppressing and that person says, you know what, I owe you, here it is, and by the way, here's this. And hopefully that would show that this person's like, what? And everybody around would see and see them exposed that you're being unjust here but it's a nonviolent resistance to evil using good. 
Going the extra mile, context here is the occupying Roman army had a law that a soldier could demand a Jew to carry their pack, which were very heavy, a one mile. How then could the conscripts take the initiative and declare and preserve their dignity? They could proactively make the decision to go further, taking that decision out of the hands of the Roman and making it their decision. I'll take your pack a mile, and I'm going to add to that, and I'm going to decide to take it further. And the response to this was profound. And as people did this, the, the, a many a Roman soldier would be like, no, 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 you, no, no you're done. No, 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 I'm making this decision to do this, to serve you, my enemy. Again, a nonviolent resistance to evil using good. All of this, interestingly enough, foreshadows the cross. These examples are foreshadows of Christ's work on the cross where Christ submitted to a humiliating injustice. And we know the stories of Christ being in that place, submitting to human activities and punishments and so on, from the crown of thorns to the whip to the, the words that were hurled at him. And again, exposing the evil of the human heart. And this leads us to the way of the cross as it relates to dealing with those who choose to do us harm. We want to break the cycle of violence and retribution. We want to have as a focus, hopefully in our minds and our hearts, the redemption of our opponent. We want to refuse to behave like our enemies. We recognize that God looks after justice and we live freely. And all of those principles are, are remarked and are in, represented in the cross. Breaking the cycle of violence and retribution, redemption of the opponent. Christ is there saying, just forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Refuse to behave like our enemies. God looks after justice, and we live freely. Okay, we got to wrap up here. Uh, final one, number three, is demonstrate compassion. And again, in Matthew uh, 9.36, it says this. Uh, when the, he saw the crowds, that is Jesus, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. We are called to have compassion on others. What does this include? What is the example of Jesus? Well, first thing, sympathy. Sympathy is this ability to identify. Are we willing to get a sense of someone else's circumstance? It will mean suspending judgment. We talked about that in the mind. And assuming the best about them, even giving them the benefit of the doubt. Giving them the benefit of the doubt is this state of accepting someone or something as being honest and deserving of our trust, even though there might be some doubts. They may be lying, but we're going to give them the benefit of the doubt and accept what they say for now. And so sympathy is going to, going to require us to set those things aside and focus on the person. What is their need? What do they need mercy for? In the same way, we have this idea of outrage. Now, this is not outrage that's uncontrolled, but righteous outrage towards circumstances that have diminished someone's life. 
Are we outraged by the depravity of sin? Are we outraged when we see the things that go on in our society that are harming people? This is not the way it's supposed to be. And are we someone that looks and says, this is not the way it's supposed to be, and I want to do something about it? How do we respond? And we don't respond violently. We don't respond oppressively. We don't attack people. We just covered that in the point before. We do it in a nonviolent and in a way that looks to redemption as our ultimate goal for whatever it is that's going on. And then brokenness to compassion. So as we're broken, as we have sympathy and that breaks our heart, as we have outrage towards what's going on in our society or in our circumstances or in other people's circumstances, does that break us to the point where we have compassion and do we respond to those things? And so hopefully that is part of having compassion for others is that we get to a point of brokenness and then we act in that. So our core truth this morning, Jesus has made our love for our neighbor inseparable from our love for God. We cannot say we love God if we do not love our neighbor. And our neighbor is anyone who is in need of mercy, and our neighbor extends to those who would do us harm. We are to extend mercy, forgiveness, even absorb injustice, And our compassion is to include a loving response to our enemies and a loving resistance to the forces of evil. Our memory verse this morning, John 13, 34 to 35. A new command I give to you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Not just the easy to love, but everyone, unconditionally. As believers, as disciples, as Christians, we should be known by our unconditional love for those around us. Some questions for reflection. Am I willing to see people through the eyes of Christ? Am I willing to see them in a way that Christ sees them, the need of redemption, they need mercy, and even those that are perhaps combative towards us. Who do I need to extend compassion to, maybe even this week? Perhaps someone's in your path, in in your circle, in some way that you need to extend some compassion. And for whom will I pray that God will give me a love for them, despite their treatment of me? A final thought as we wrap up this series uh, and and kind of bring this to a close. We are called to connect head and heart, faith and works, love for God and love for our neighbor. And Jesus' words in the essential commandment take us to the very core of life is about. He tells us to be laser focused in our continuous growth in loving him with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, and with all our strength, so that we can love our neighbor and even our enemies who are in need of mercy. And finally, to wrap up our time and read this one last time. The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. 
Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no greater command than these. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the Lord Jesus and how we see Jesus interacting with uh, the people of the day and the culture. And Father, um, it's... uh, It's jaw-dropping to see his response, to see what he's calling us to as it relates to loving those around us. And so, Father, we first recognize that you loved us and have given incredible mercy and continue to do that our whole lives. And, Father, as we then accept that, recognize that, Lord Jesus, as we make you Lord of our life, And the Holy Spirit comes to reside in us. We thank you that you give us the strength, the power, the will, the desire to love others, even those that are difficult to love, those that it's messy to love. And Father, we thank you that you equip us and go with us. And Father, may at the center of all of this always be the fact that we want to see people redeemed, We want to see them come to know and understand what we have come to know and understand, that you love us and you want to be in relationship with us and you want to restore us. Father, may that just guide us. May that drive us. May that be the mission of our lives as we interact with those around us and extend the love that you have shown to us to them. In Jesus' name, amen.